good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Uh, this is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Jazz, the two man power trip of Power Trip of Wrestling, brought to you today and powered by Bombas. Bombas is a mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a mission to help those in need. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Mr. Primetime, John Paz. And John, today on the show, we have a member of one of the most remembered tag teams in the history of WCW, maybe for sometimes more comedic reasons than others, but still a very formidable tag team, and that is Scotty Riggs of the American Males. Now, Scotty Riggs had a very nice career and a very, very story career from his point of view where he got to compete against a lot of big names, got to have a really great spot in the company for a very long time but, uh, you know, the American Males, I think, is uh, what he'd be remembered most for when you look at WCW and his time there, but uh, the theme song, let me get your thoughts on it because, man, is that iconic when you think about Scotty Riggs and the American Males Yes, Chad, we're back at it again, and this time it's Scotty Riggs. Now, with Matt Morgan, we called it an epic, and this is basically another epic for us. It's a long one. It's a great one, and I just love talking to Scotty Riggs. And like you mentioned, one of the great things to get to talk to him about, you know, almost jokingly in a way, but, you know, obviously we really, really do, you know, dig the song, if you will, and that's the American Males theme song, and not only that, but the American Males gimmick in the American Males tag team with Marcus Alexander, a.k.a. Buff Bagwell. So it was really nice because, you know, being a longtime WCW fan, you know, you remember the ins and the outs and uh, every almost every show. I'm watching Saturday Night, I'm watching Nitro, I'm watching Thunder, I'm watching the syndicated shows. But, you know, I just really, really loved the American Males, but, you know, not in a... Not in a, oh, these guys are terrible. It's like these two young guys that they're giving a kind of a weird 80s gimmick to, but it's kind of fun in a weird way. Like when they beat the Harlem Heat and won the tag titles, what an upset. And I definitely popped for it as a kid, but I just, I, I thought it was so funny that these guys have like this jokey theme song. It, it's so strange. And I always wonder, I wonder if Buff Bagwell and Scotty Riggs dig this song. Do they like this song? Or, or do they think, you know, it's absolutely terrible? And Riggs goes into, 
every detail about the American males. He talks about, you know, what they were looking for, who really came up with the gimmick, you know, the, uh, the almost the lineage to the fabulous ones. So we got a ton, a ton of stuff, you know, about the American males, about uh, his relationship with Buff Bagwell, a little bit of a Jimmy Hart story in there, and of course the epic theme song that, you know, this is what uh, twenty years later or so, and we're still have that song stuck in our head. So it's just utterly amazing that uh, the American males have uh, lasted the test of time. Yeah, definitely, truly lasted. The test of time in the American Males is a timeless tag team when you consider the other teams in WCW. But how about when Scotty Riggs joined the flock and he turned heel and the Raven feud that ensued following the turn? And, uh, you know, when you look back at the flock, uh, I think they don't get the credit that they deserve because, man, were they over. Yeah, WCW had so much going on at one point, obviously with the NWO, with Crow Sting. I mean, you had... All the awesome cruiserweights. You had all these guys battling over the TV title, like Finley and Regal, who were just amazing wrestlers. And obviously Booker T, and then you bring in Rick Martel, who's another great wrestler. But then, when you really you know think about it, you also had The Flock. The Flock was just another great faction, but kind of underused, kind of undervalued. They were um, more or less... You know, on the undercard or the midcard, except for Raven, he, he was kind of like the upper midcard. But the feud that really, you know, got Riggs kind of on the map after the American Males was with Raven and was with the flock. Cause Riggs versus Raven was very cool. It was almost like, what is Raven up to? What is he doing? And then he kind of handpicks Riggs for the flock. I mean, the you know, everyone remembers the eye injury, the eye patch, which is cool. We got a lot of great stories about the eye patch and the injury and how legit it was, which is kind of surprising. But, I mean, you always heard the rumor. But really cool to find out that, you know, it was a pretty legit injury. But the flock was pretty underrated for sure, as I said. It was just kind of cool to get like those mix of guys, almost like those freak, uh, freak show characters all together, and, and to see them feud with like a guy like Goldberg or or Chris Benoit. So it was kind of cool. But I really liked when uh, Riggs was faced feuding with Raven and then turns heel and joins Raven the flock and he's wearing the eye patch. I thought that was so cool and uh, just so different to have a guy wearing an eye patch out there. And you know, we get the whole story from Riggs and he goes into it in great detail, which we absolutely loved because at that time in WCW, I mean, I was uh, knee deep or actually neck deep in WCW. I absolutely loved it. So the flock 100% was over, but perhaps not used, you know, to their best abilities. Now, Scotty does love his ECW run, and at that point, I wasn't really personally watching uh, ECW too closely uh, at that point, but he talks about the heat he had in the short time he was there, and then I went back and watched a couple of the appearances that he had, and yeah, man, he was definitely uh, a heat seeker to say the least, and uh, I think that you know, talk about the American Males theme song earlier, uh, definitely played into it uh, a little bit, but what are your thoughts on Scotty Riggs' ECW run? Yeah, the ECW run uh, as Scotty Anton. A lot of people tend to forget about that, but I uh, I look upon it fondly. I know that uh, you weren't a big fan of ECW at that point, but um, you know they were they were um, not lost, but they were kind of losing it with Heyman. Um, his booking wasn't what it was, and um, you know they weren't qu- quite getting the um, the viewership from uh, the TNN as I guess as they thought. They weren't really getting a lot of help quite frankly, from the network, you know, to actually try to get some viewership and try to actually promote the show. 
So what you get at that point is just, you know, you really study and you really watch and you think, wow, that's kind of cool. Like uh, Scotty Riggs, a.k.a. Scotty Anton, who obviously has a relationship with a few of the guys in ECW, but especially Rob Van Dam with a friend. It's kind of cool he gets to go in there and, and basically feud with his friend. Which was really cool was, you know, Jerry Lynn is feuding with RVD, and, and it was almost, um, you know, you almost didn't see it coming that Riggs, in a weird way you kind of did. You're like, I wonder if he turns him here. But in, in a weird way you almost didn't see it coming because you didn't know where they were headed with that. But it was cool. You, you get Scotty Anton turns on RVD, and then you get a cool feud there, and you get the show, because RVD was basically in his prime at that point. So Riggs really got to show what he had at that point. And he got a good little feud with RVD and ECW, and I liked it. And obviously Riggs, as he mentions, he loved the ECW run. But it, the best thing I think about it is so funny, because I mean, that's kind of the, the way Heyman works, the quote-unquote genius of Heyman. He sees the clap. In WCW, obviously, the American Male is the infamous clap, and he kind of turns it into his own little thing, and Riggs is totally on board with it, and he's using it you know, to get a lot of heel heat, and it worked. He got a lot of heel heat in a short run in ECW, and I don't know, for whatever reason, I always think back and look fondly upon his time in ECW. I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed his feud with Rob Van Dam. Now, John, before we send it over to the epic, as we put it earlier, Scotty Riggs interview, please tell the fine folks and the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling just exactly where they can find all of the business related to the two-man power trip of wrestling. And also tell them a little bit about Bombas. That's right, baby. Bombas is back. The greatest sock in the history of socks is back. Not only are they comfortable... They are good for athletics as well. They are the greatest sock of all time. I mean, athletics, leisure, you know, leisure sock, whatever you want to do, Bombas can fit that need for you. Just remember, every pair of sock that you buy, a pair of socks gets donated to the homeless because that is the number one requested item down there at the homeless shelters. So just remember Bombas their, and their mission. And also remember, they are the greatest sock in the history of... Of socks, and you could find our Bombas link on our website tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com in the upper left-hand corner, and do all your Bombas shopping through us. Again, that's on the upper left-hand corner of our website tmptofwrestling.com. Now to some more TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal at Two Man Power Trip. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Yes, find all great clips from all our great episodes. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, while you're on iTunes, check out the feed with prior episodes with the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, who we do talk about in great detail, his Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling with Scotty Riggs, so please uh, look forward to that, and some other great WCW guys like... The great one himself, Glacier, yes. And don't forget other great guys that we have on there on the feed like Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, WWE's Kane, WWE's Dean Ambrose, Jesse the Body Ventura, and so, so, so many others. So please check us out on iTunes. Also, don't forget the I-95 Sports Network. You can check us out there. Please Google I-95 Sports Network and type in two-man power trip wrestling and you will find us there. We were live and in color. 6 o'clock Eastern every Monday night, so please enjoy us there. And also, if you'd like to book 
the legendary Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Furtick, please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com to book Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Furtick. That is email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. He is out of exile, and he's ready to return. He's back after four years in the wrestling business, folks. He was out. So please, if you'd like to book him, check us out. Now, without any further ado, we send it off to an epic. One of our best, folks. This is a long one, and this is a good one. And this is one of the ones where you, me and Chad sat back and were like, man, this was just an awesome, detailed, great interview. I mean, you just sit there and think, and you, know, you got your, your hand on your, uh, on your chin there, and you're just listening to all these great stories, all this cool stuff. I mean, you got stuff from WCW, ECW, from TCW. You got to the Dusty Road stuff. You got stuff on Eric Bischoff. So, folks, I promise you, you will not be sorry with this one. This is an awesome one. He is the former WCW Tag Team Champion of the World. He is a former American male. He is Scotty Riggs. coming you better run for cover but all you girls you don't need a weekend lover oh it's former wcw tag team champion as part of the american males and a former smoky mountain television champion it is scotty riggs thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling what is going on you two yahoos let's go with that uh, two-man power trip two yahoos because you, you I, forgot I got- my dc you forgot my TCW heavyweight championship that I beat Barry Windham for when I was wrestling for Dusty Rhodes. God bless the soul. You forgot to, you know, I'm just ribbing on you guys. Just give me a hard time. Got to. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait. I'm um, let me. No, no. I'm going to refer to my sheet right here. And our first question that we had for you, if I look down at my sheet correctly, was, "What are your thoughts on your victory over Barry Windham to win the TCW <laughs> championship? How about that? Let's start right there." <laughs> Well, the the first time I actually beat Barry, I actually didn't beat him. I cheated. The referee was knocked down, and and my valet, who was Daphne, she came in at the time, and she actually, while the ref was down for a bump, I had Barry covered. She came in and covered the ref hand. That's how good Dusty was, his creativity. He, you know, he did the one, two, three, and she was shaking him on the three, and the ref got up and was looking around like, what's going on? And we told him he made the three counts. We actually stole the title. I had the belt for a week. They stripped me from it, and then I actually beat them straight up forward about two months later. That's a pretty creative way of uh, winning the title, though. That's so, a hell of a creative way, without a doubt. You know, so, so Daphne, so I had a definite, you know, me and Daphne were definitely the partners in crime from day one there with Dusty. To answer oh. that question about how I beat Barry Wyndham the first time. Well, we're going to get that. We're going to get to that. That is on our list. Trust me. We will get it all into Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling. But just before we started really recording here, we just kind of, you know, riffing back and forth about things that you can and cannot say. We mentioned sports entertainment 
and uh, how clean it is these days. But what's your take on where the wrestling business is headed and how much it's really changed in the last, you know, 20 years when uh, when you got to WCW and you guys were starting to take over the uh, the reins, if you will, of the wrestling business? Wow, that's a very in-depth question to start off with. I mean, you're you're in for straight meat and potatoes of the business there. Um, I mean, it, it's it's definitely it's 180 degrees from what really drew money, from what really uh, made a wrestling fan a wrestling fan. It's not even it's it's wrestling to the extent that their uh, the ring is the stage where. Uh, these great athletes. I mean, these, these cats are today can probably do more than most of the guys did in in most of what they could have thought could be done. I mean, these guys today are they're in shape. The only problem is they all look alike because they're all in shape. Uh, oh, but it's, it's just definitely changed where it's more of a TV product instead of the arena product like it used to be. I mean, you used to have to put money, put asses in seats back in the day by having a true villain, which there are no villains anymore. They're all celebrities. They're all have their verified blue checks by their name on Twitter. They're all uh, strong in movies, everything else now. So they've gone for their wrestlers to where they're definitely sports entertainers. Um, wrestling holds are booed by fans instead of the pivot point of uh, psychology. Um, finishing holds really don't mean anything when you got to use three of them, or finishing maneuvers when you got to use three of them to beat somebody. Um, so it's, just, it's, it's definitely a different business to what I grew up on and how you could really spend disbelief in what, in what the fans are seeing to where it is now where the fans try to be more part of the show. They're chanting, this is awesome, when they don't even know what awesome is. You really send them some awesome wrestling, they they can't boring at you. Right. So you know, but but it's definitely the business has evolved, you know, and, and some of these guys you probably would have thirty, forty year careers back in the day, are probably not gonna have five to ten year careers because of all the maneuvers they have to do to get responses, to listen the response, the boos, the cheers, the yays, the this is awesome, or or you effed up chance from people. Uh, are cutting their careers in, in 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 half. So that's pretty much my just you know the way I, I view it. You know, it, it's good in that it's evolved to be a great TV show, a great TV product. But uh, you used to really get paid from the house shows, right? Could you ever in a million years have imagined it, though, looking at like looking this bleak and having so many you know not just you know a former workers but also fans that just are completely like turned off by what's being presented not even only in wwe i'm not just going to single them out obviously they have the biggest platform but you know there's a lot of other indie leagues that try to uh copy wwe obviously tna is a whole other beast i mean they just basically go six months behind and they're creative but you know did you ever see it going in this direction where everybody just be so sour on it um it's really hard to believe that it is but um, yeah, yeah, everybody, instead of being fans, I remember when I was a fan, I was definitely afraid of Ole Anderson, you know, the, the, the mass superstar. Cause I always thought those guys would beat me up, but I was like, so glad for like Ricky Steamboat and Paul Jones and those guys. Cause they would stand up for me, you know? 
So I definitely had my who I'd cheer and who I'd, that was solidified. They didn't really flip-flop back and forth. Nowadays, you don't know whether to cheer or boom. And the fans, they just cheer whoever they like, which is great for merchandise, you know. And But it's just, you know, you got John Cena, who's been created to be Superman, and he gets such a mixed reaction. I mean, in the 80s, he would be, you know, he would be cheered mercifully. You know, it would be it would be deafening if he was just a solid good guy back in the eighties. He it would be deafening. He'd be Bruno San Martino back then. You yeah. know, and, and there would be no nobody against him and and how the fans related to him. They would all right. be for him. But now they either like him or they hate him and, and that's the way the fans have been educated to be now. You know, so you get to see to see how the instead of being a fan, they're all critics now. And unfortunately, the evolution of Facebook and Twitter and the internet and dirt sheets and this way that our own social media, uh, since the, that term has evolved, has changed it to where everybody, instead of being a fan of it, is a critic of it. So, you know, when I look at my Twitter feed and I look at uh, sometimes how people are responding to matches, and when I see, when I see something good, I'm like, man, that, that, that was a great match. People are going, well, he should have gone over, or he should have gone over, you know, it's like going, wow, one of these people who's, have they ever sat in booking meetings, or, you know, <laughs> sat down for a finish, or have an idea where the storyline's going, and why they're doing this with this guy, and, you know, why did Kevin Owens get such a hot start and defeat John Cena, and then now he's lost two in a row, and now he's down to a mid-car level, you know. People don't know what the whole package is, what they're trying to do, and so all I do is criticize it instead of being a fan and sit back and enjoying it. You know, it's meant to be enjoyed. But unfortunately, they don't even enjoy it anymore. They just yeah. criticize it. And that's, that's the shame of it all. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of, you know, it's funny uh, that you say it that way because for years and years and years, you know, the cynical, you know, management guy that would say, oh, well, we can't make the Internet happy and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, 10, 15 years ago when they were saying that, there really wasn't that much of an Internet audience. Now that's where they're driving the product. Hey, watch our web show. Hey, come on Instagram yeah. do this. Hey, watch us do Well, uh, yeah, you got to evolve you know? with, with what's going on. Yeah, you got to evolve with it, you know. So, I mean, the the crazy thing is, is you got somebody with a verified Twitter who can't even be themselves in their Twitter. They have to go with uh, the storyline they're going through, you know. And yeah. you know, I really don't. You know, I, I, call me silly, but I actually don't think Ziggler and Lana are going to Disneyland together and taking <laughs> pictures and putting them up on Twitter and Instagram. You know, I really don't think that they are dating in real life. But that's the storyline they got to go through. So what's all over their Twitter and Instagram? Picture of them being lovey dovey at Disneyland and everything else. I'm like, okay, I guess that's when we got to suspend this belief. But then you tell everybody it's not real. So why are you picking all these crazy curveballs and stuff like this where it's not real, we're actors, but, you know, with our own Twitter feeds, we got to go with what's supposed to be part of the show. Right. So you get you get mixed messages of fans. And so I guess you get mixed reaction from them. And I guess this is kind of playing a devil's advocate here, but uh, had there been a Twitter or a uh, social media back in the heart of the Monday Night Wars and with the uh, the old school crew, 
that used to run wild through uh, the Monday Night War. Do you think many people would either, A, be gainfully uh, employed much longer, or do you think uh, Twitter it would be banned from a place like a WCW? Um, there'd be a lot more lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, it was uh, definitely believe me back in back in the day of the the, the mid 90s and the early 2000s it was uh the sex drugs and rock and roll of wrestling era where it was it was crazy it was uh there were plenty of times you would get on the road and um drive from you know it would be a town of about six or seven cars driving in a, in a, in a pretty much a train going down the road, going from one town to the next. So we're all traveling safe, so we don't get lost. And we're all having a bunch of brews, so we can relax. And it's, you know, good guys travel with bad guys at 2, 3 in the morning. You know, so, I mean, it's funny. I've had a few people ask me if I, uh, you know, if I, you know, about pictures and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, we didn't get, I didn't have a cell phone like they have nowadays or a, or a phone itself that would take pictures. So you had a chance to get pictures of everybody doing everything like they do now. Back in my day, we had cell phones that were like my, my Nokia was like a little brick, not the big, yeah. not the big, not the big phone to make fun of, but it was a brick. It was a good sized phone that didn't break. It was a Nokia. You got text messages. You got uh, you got calls from it. But um, the phone I had there lasted for five or six years almost. But it got you know it got coverage everywhere. So we had it. But we didn't take pictures of everything. So when people ask me about pictures and stuff back then, I say, man, if, if we had a photographer like Ross Foreman or Susan, I can't remember her last name offhand, or Patty Thayer, uh, somebody got to work for a magazine that always had their cameras with them, you know, like a bill after. You know, if they weren't there to document pictures and matches and stuff, we didn't have them. We didn't have backstage pictures. You know, we didn't have stuff like that. So like to have nowadays, just boom, you got an instant picture doing everything you're doing. So it's definitely changed the business, and you know, like it's changed news. Wrestling has changed towards a twenty-four-seven, you know, business now. Like I said, they're celebrities now; they're not just wrestlers anymore. You know, we're talking about if there was social media back then, but let's talk about back then. Let's talk about WCW. When did you debut in WCW? It was in nineteen ninety-five, I guess it was. I actually. Um, I had my first match in wrestling in 96, and I actually started doing um, uh, some stuff with WCW. Actually, it was in 94. I met, uh, I moved to Marietta, Georgia, from uh, Carrollton, where I went to school, and was going to management fitness for Luger and Sting. It was their gym. And I met, uh, like, DDP and Brad Armstrong and some of the guys that were there, and I knew they were going to... uh, Jonesboro, Georgia, which is south of Atlanta, and Marietta's on the north side of Atlanta. And a friend of mine had a wrestling ring in the back of his karate school because he was running shows. So basically, I told Paige and those guys about the ring and ended up getting Paige. And uh, like I said, Brad Armstrong, Jake Snake came over a couple times. Um, Regal and uh, Raven even came over a couple times and just we did some training at school there. And that's where Paige kind of, uh, I guess you could say, took a shine to me and, and being able to work with him and train with him and help him learn moves, I, I was kind of his punching bag a little bit, which was good because it also taught me stuff. So we actually put a match together 
that he wanted to shut some stuff off to Jody Hamilton, who's running the school down in Jonesboro, the power plant. Went down there and um, basically put that match on for Jody. Jody loved all the stuff the page was doing, but wondered who the hell I was. So we started talking a little bit, and Paige was like, Jody, Jody, this guy's been working a year and a half. And the next thing I know, Jody said, he goes, I can't promise you anything, but I can get you some good matches on TV and maybe get you noticed. So I had a match. He put me in a match with uh, Steve Regal, a good eight, ten-minute match. That people couldn't believe, know how, you know, who's this young kid. He put me in a match with Steve Austin that really got me over big time. So when Austin was with uh, Colonel Parker, uh, that Patrick was a ref. We did like eight minutes, and Dusty was a booker. And after the match, Dusty came back and was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I booked the finish. And here you are, you know, you're doing all this great stuff. I couldn't believe how good you were. And so basically it was in 94 that I really started with them, but I was really doing, you know, somebody has to work, doing the favors for guys. And uh, they gave, they put me in the road. I started doing some house shows. I'd be like the first match. And uh, if I wasn't working an actual TV match, I would work uh, dark matches. So I basically really started in 94 with them and kind of got my feet wet with the guys, got to know the guys, guys saw I could work. So I really wasn't one of those guys that would just get fed out there just to get beat down in, in a really a squash match. But they would put me in there with somebody who would, you know, and Jody would do most of the booking with that for the Nesta talent and uh, put me in good matches. So I got seen in a favorable, favorable light, even though I was putting guys over. But my real big rub came with them in 95 uh, when they put me with Marcus. So I basically spent about a year, a little over a year with WCW, just doing enhancement work with them. I was working on doing some stuff with Smoky Mountain all sorts of time. Uh, I was working a bunch of independents. And um, what got me actually in WCW was me leaving WCW in, in 95. That makes any sense. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, um, like I said, I kind of built a little resume working with good talent, working as a good talent, working as a good hand, putting guys over. Guys, you know, can have good matches. So when people thought they were working with me, they knew we could do some stuff, have a you know competitive match. And had it been maybe October of '94. Uh, Arn Anderson came up to me at center stage in Atlanta and said, you need to get out of here. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I've been on the road for probably about three months, probably every, probably working 10 days a week on the road with those guys, making 250 a pop, which is, you know, pretty good money working, being first match. Uh, then doing TVs where you're making 200 a pop for TVs, which we were doing like maybe six, just for eight weeks. So I was making pretty good money just doing what I was doing. But I said, dude, you got a good look, you got a good ability, you got a great attitude, um, but Bischoff's about to take over here, and you're going to get stuck under a glass ceiling where you'll be seen only if somebody puts somebody over. You know, you got too much ability, you got to get out of here. So basically, he had Arn Anderson, you know, whose weight or whose words carry a lot of weight. You know, when Arn speaks, you listen. You know, and, and here I, well, I was young. I was two years, all over two years of business. So basically, I'm like, okay, what do I do now? 
And I was traveling with Jake Roberts at the time also, doing some shows um, in Georgia and the Carolinas. We worked for a guy, Ben Masters, for his uh, Thanksgiving show. And Jerry Lawler was on that show. And, you know, Jerry was running USWA at the time. And he owned it and stuff like that. And so Jake basically uh, told Lawler about me to watch one match. Jerry watched my match. Uh, and then offered me a spot to go into USWA. And he basically said, you know, I can bring you in. You'll make 40 bucks a night, but you'll get experience here, you get exposure. And so basically I spent, um, I got a call on January 1st. I was over at Glacier's house. We were watching bowl games. I got a call uh, from Randy Hale, who was a booker of USWA then. And uh, basically told me um, the starting date is January 14th. Be channel five at seven three in the morning. We go on there live at ten, and you'll be in Nashville that night, Memphis that Monday, and kind of gave me the rundown for the next two weeks. You know, and I was starting starting with them. Like okay, so just by Arn Anderson told me to leave. Uh, I kind of got after getting a good you know good little run as a TV guy. WCW I left there, spent eight months in Memphis. And um, did a music video with uh, with Marcus, with a guy named Kipper Rogers, who was our uh, one of the production guys, who was trying to build up a resume. Now this is kind of herky jerky the story that I'm telling, but eight months I spent in Memphis was just a chance to really hone my craft. And somewhere in the, within the middle of that, I shot this video with Marcus because Kipper knew me and was trying to build a resume. So he put me and Marcus in a music video. And while Marcus, uh, while he was doing the editing for this video, um, was when Jimmy Hart saw me and Marcus. And that's how I got my rub basically to come back in WCW as uh, Marcus' partner. So it's a little humble jumble there, a little herky-jerky in the story. But it all flowed, if you think about spending the eight months honing craft, my craft and getting my experience in the USWA, which I would never have gotten if Arn hadn't told me to leave WCW because Bischoff was taking over, you know? So it makes sense if you kind of look at the whole picture of it. And when I came into Marcus's partner in 95, uh, it was August, you know, the first uh, TV tape in, in Orlando. We were with uh, the Blue Buds, Regal and uh, Eaton. They made me look like a you know a ten year veteran, and the next thing I know, I was Marcus's partner under a ninety day deal, and that turned into my first contract with him. Now, obviously, you then you become uh, Scotty Riggs, and then you know obviously you mentioned you're with Marcus Alexander Bagwell. How do they propose to you that you're going to become this very nineties esque tag team in the American Males? Well, again, that was that was Jimmy Hart's creativity. Um, you know, uh, again, he when when he saw me in the video, his first thoughts was the fabulous ones, the Fantastics, the Rock and Roll Express, '80s tag teams that he worked with in USWA. And that's where uh, uh, Jimmy had most of his background working with teams and stuff like that, and seeing talent develop. The talent was at the USWA. And uh, when he saw me, Marcus, that was his vision. You know, he saw these two good-looking guys. You know, we did a uh, 
we had our match with Eaton and Regal and turned around and they didn't want to do any other matches with us. They've, they've loved it and hot shot and listened to doing a couple of music videos like they used to do back then. They had me and Marcus riding horses and doing all this other goofy stuff with, in blue jeans with short, you know, with no shirts on. And just hokey 80s stuff, which is all Jimmy. And we actually spent two days, three days almost, shooting this stuff they never even used, which was the goofy part about it. That was all riding horses. They made a photo shoot out of it for the magazines, but they never really used it for uh, the video of it. They ended up shooting a black and white video. Um, uh, it was, um, you know, at the, what was it? It was some. It was some uh, some historic place in in Atlanta that had all these some museums, some I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, had all these uh, skeletons and statues and stuff in the staircases that we shut all this stuff at for that eighty. That, I think it was the eighty second video you used to see with some black and white. But um, it was all Jimmy Hart's idea, and it was actually a pretty good concept. It was just a little bit outdated. But the only problem was we were the only good guy attacking they had. You know, they had the Nasty Boys. They had Harlem Heat. They had Dick Slater and Bucknell's Buck. They had State Patrol. They had uh, Men at Work, which was Canyon and Mark Starr. You know, so they had they had teams, but we were the only real good guy team they had. So we kind of got stuck in that squeaky clean, baby face, 80s gimmick, but in the 90s. Yes, definitely. Very, very 80s, very Jimmy Hart, I guess you could say. And Jimmy Hart's very famous for making theme songs. And obviously the American Males theme song is still, you know, with wrestling fans today. It's very popular. Uh, everyone knows it as soon as you hear that first beat. I don't know what if it's you... popular. <laughs> well, you know, it's known. But it's like, well, it's like that song that gets stuck in your head and you can't get it out. That's definitely yeah. a fact on that. What did you think when they first, you know, were like, hey, here, here you go, here's your theme song? You want to know the truth? <laughs> yes, yes. Which I'm sure you do. I remember <laughs> we were in Orlando. They pulled us into this was before we worked with Regal and Eaton, and we had put some some outfits together. We had put some jeans and got some sequins sewn on them. And actually, the girl, Lady Sandra Gray, who does the uh, she's the seamstress for WWE now, she was the one who, one who first put our first couple outfits together, which was basically blue jeans with some sequins on the side and stuff like that. So kind of even an 80s look to our our wrestling gear at first. So we had to put it together in a couple of days. But they pulled us in this room at the uh, business studios down there. And Jimmy's all excited and Jimmy's all hyper. And he's like, here's your tune, baby. Here's your tune, baby. And it starts with that, yeah, yeah. We mark it to go like, okay, it's all, it's got a good beat to it. So it goes, American males. We went, oh, we both, I swear to God, we looked at each other, jaws dropped off, like, oh, my God. And Jimmy jumped around going, yeah, got the diva, I went into it, listen to it, it kicks in there, baby. And then it kicks in there, when you see him coming, better run for cover, you know. <laughs> we just looked at each other like, oh, my God. But we love it, Jimmy, it's great. The funny thing about it, the whole deal was, for me, it was my first gig that we were a team and for Marcus, it was his first team that were, he was actually a team. When it was Stars and Stripes, he got put together with Patriots, who was already Stars and Stripes. 
So when they got put together, he just assimilated the Patriots gimmick. When he got put with Too Cold, they were doing the dancing thing. So he assimilated Too Cold's gimmick. Fighting with the American Males from Marcus, it was the American Males. It was we became the gimmick. So Marcus was kind of actually excited about it, that we had the actual music and everything. And then I was excited about it because it was my first deal. So whether it sounded good or sounded great, we loved it. I mean, if you think of Sting's music, you know, I think I think Jimmy, either Jimmy did it or Michael Hayes did it. But the, the verses are, he does this, he does that. He's strong as a bull, he's quick as a cat. You know, it's, it's that type of lyric, you know. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. Sting can have, have that lyric, his music, American Males will work. So, but it was one of those things where our jaws dropped. But it, you know, when the, when the people heard it, they knew it was coming. <laughs> it definitely is super memorable because uh, as soon as you hear that little mm, start up, I mean, the song pops right in. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. And another thing you guys did, which is, you know, it did get over, but you know, in a funny way. And then later on in your career, you, you turned it into, you know, something quite funny in ECW, but that was that clap that you guys did. Was that just something you guys, you know, came up with off the cuff or that's something that they wanted you to do? Uh, it kind of came off the cuff. I mean, we just kind of, we, we do it always do a little forearm bump when we're in the back going, I mean, swear to God, we look at each other and go, man, this is cheesy, but let's get out there and get it over. You know, and that was our thing. And we look at each other and go, hey, you know, we do the forearm bump and we'd be saying, it ain't easy being this cheesy. And somehow, <laughs> out of nowhere, he started, I think it was, he started doing the clap thing to get the people going as we started walking. So I'd start, I was right behind him, so I'd start doing it, and it just became, it was very organic. It just kind of happened, you know, and, and it just became our, our thing of going down the ring, get the fans clapping with you. Hey, we're the 80s, you know, baby faces. Got to get those fans clapping. And it worked, you know, and, and it got, you know, it came with us. It got over, you know, in a way. I mean, I look at it nowadays, and, you know, uh, God bless New Day. They turned, you know, New Day sucks, that clap, into an over-character, an over-part uh, of their character. So God bless them for, for either they found it, somebody created it, gave me an idea, and they ran with it. To me, I'm just happy to see it go from the 90s to 20 years later. They're working, and it's getting over. Hmm. That's a good point, and... Uh... Obviously, they were doing that when you guys were wrestling the Harlem Heat, and you guys shockingly, because I remember watching it uh, and being totally shocked, you guys end up winning the WWE tag title from you know the the legendary Harlem Heat. What was it like when you know they're, they're telling you you're going to win the tag titles, and then you actually win them for WCW? Oh, that was a uh, that was a weekend of ribs. Actually, um, we got into uh, Asheville. We started had to come into the well, of course, it's not that I knew, but most of the time, guys show for pay-per-views, day of pay-per-view. I think uh, the the time Honky Tonk Man didn't want to put over Johnny B. Bad after they'd already had the finishes and stuff, he didn't want to put over Bad, and uh, they changed the prerequisite. If you come in the night before the pay-per-view, you get your finishes and everything, and if you disagreed with them, you could talk them out, and they could figure a way out of it instead of being stuck that day to try to get something worked out. So we basically showed up in Asheville for the fall raw pay-per-view on Saturday. And the first person to welcome me to the company was Rick Flair. Well, people, me and Marcus walk in, we drove up together, um, from Atlanta. 
we walk into the Marriott there, and Flair walks up and goes, Scotty, I heard you were coming in. You know, I don't know how he knew or anything, but he just come over, and I think it was just way I wanted to go out. But he walked up and said, Scotty, I'm going to welcome you to the company. Let's go out tonight. Get dressed, got the girls, blah, blah, blah. So the next thing you know, you know, Rick takes us out, get a good meal, takes us to a club, we have a few drinks. You know, just the Flair is one of the coolest people in the world to welcome you. And to me, that was awesome to have Flair welcome me to the company. Here's a guy that I saw wrestling in the 70s and the 80s. And now here I am, you know, going out with them and being welcomed by them. And we worked uh, Slater and, uh, no, we worked Nasty Boys. And the Nasty Boys were not pissed, but didn't want to put us over on the, the main event show. They weren't happy about it. And they literally weren't happy about it, but uh, Kevin Sullivan, who was the head booker at the time, said, dude, this is what we're doing. And so we had a little discussion about it. And long story short, when I locked up with SAG starting off the match, he put me in the corner, and if you ever watch it, there's 22 unanswered punches and kicks that were live rounds. Wow. And that was his way of, of being a little pissed off with the young guy. Having put us over, he, he kind of played it off going, oh, I was just walking into the company and all this stuff. I had two knots on my head and, and, and you know, a bruise on my side where he's kicking me. Even, you know, nobody knew he was going to do it. Randy Anderson, who was referee, was pissed. His partner, uh, Brian, was pissed about it. Even he, Brian came over and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? Marcus came in and shoved him. And there's all knobs, or not knobs, but all sags being pissed off that he didn't want to have to put young guys over. So, of course, he took advantage of the youngest guy on the team in the ring, which is me. And it was kind of my welcome into the company, you know, live rounds, getting the shit kicked out of you. Um, we, we went on to that match, and they didn't tell us the next day when we got the TV they were going to put the straps on us. It's kind of like, wow. So that's pretty cool, you know. In my mind, I was going, okay, this is uh, this, this is pretty surreal. Coming from Memphis, where I wrestled six nights a week, twice on Saturday, driving everywhere, puts probably about 70,000 miles in the car, made less than, I think it was seven grand in the eight months I was there. And here I am on the third night show ever winning the World Tag Team Championships. So to me, it was pretty surreal. And twice during that afternoon, uh, who had, um, I knew Steve Regal wasn't going to be there because he was on the tour of Japan. Because they were announcing that they were wrestling the Blue Bloods. Uh, or we were wrestling the Blue Bloods for a number one contenders match, is what it was. To see you know, who would wrestle Heat in the future for a title shot. That was the story behind it. So they had, a, you know, had Heat come with Bobby. But a couple times during the day, even Kevin Summer walked up and said, Some were changing the finish. <laughs> we're going to do this. But in my mind, I knew Rico wasn't there, so we couldn't change it. But what they did was they were saying they were going to have the nasties jump Bobby instead of Heat. And the nasties were going to beat us for losing on the main event from the night before, beat us and then wrestle. So we weren't getting the titles. So me being a young guy, I was a little disappointed, but I just went, Okay, oh well. Not like I, I had any pull or any influence what would happen. I just went, okay, shucks. That kind of sucks, but I guess I'll do what I got to do. 
They're like, well, Dave, you're no fun with us, but you get pissed off or upset. I'm the youngster. I'm excited to be there, <laughs> you know? So, basically, I really remember after the match, I sat down in the corner of the room and had legit tears coming out of my eyes because, to me, again, it was a rush to go from where I was to where I am. Now I had the World Tag Team title in my hand. This belt, this actual leather strap was, you know, held by Ricky Steamboat and Dustin Rhodes and... Um, I mean, the, the Steiners had this belt on their around their waist. Uh, Gordy and and Doctor Dusty Williams had this belt around their waist. Actual leather around some pretty true legends of the business. And actually, had this piece of leather in their hands. And so I was a little bit cheery eyed. And Arn Anderson came around the corner, of all people. Arn gives me a shove and kind of gives me a little hug and says, "Kid, remember when I told you to leave?" I couldn't believe you remembered it. Uh, he goes, well, I told you to leave? I said, yeah. He goes, we'll get you now. It choked hmm. me up a little even more. It kind of choked me up even now thinking about it. But here's hmm. a guy, you know, he told me to leave to get better. I left, got better, and he was one of the first ones to congratulate me for getting my spot with the company. So kind of, it's kind of weird how the, the business can come around full circle sometimes. Definitely, and he definitely gave you some great, great advice. What was it like, you know, obviously you guys only held the titles for, I believe it was eight days, and you lose them right back to the Harlem Heat. Were you, uh, you know, did you feel a little slighted that, that it was going to be so short of a title run for you guys? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was one of those deals where when you look back at the psychology of it, it was a hot shot way of establishing this as a tag team, drop the straps on them. In TV time, we held the belt for like three months because we were doing so many TVs in advance. I mean, we, they had us going out there to wrestle matches at the World Tag Team Champs. We didn't even have the belts. They were announcing us to the, the voiceovers as the Tag Team Champions. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, you always thought there would be, could be more they could have done with us, especially as as a young tag team. But then all of a sudden we had the influx of the Road Warriors came in, faces of fear. That you know, Hall of Nash should come in, and all these teams are starting to come in the the Quebecers, and so we had a big influx of tag team tag teams coming in. So why they didn't give us another run with it or not was, I guess, more just to keep it on an established team. I don't know, but yeah, it kind of sucked. It only lasted for two short months. We always went out and had great matches with everybody, but they just didn't want to put us put it back on for some reason. So. You know, it definitely sucked. We had a good run with it. We always, actually, the weird thing was, we always uh, worked dark matches on most of the Nitros. I don't think we were ever in the Nitro as the tag champs. But we always opened up the shows with dark matches against either Buck and Slater or uh, the Nasties, and we'd do a 15-20 minute tag match to warm the show up and warm up the crowd. Get more of a tag team battle shot before we went live on air. So, I mean, it establishes a team. It made us credible. We just didn't give us any more, you know, just didn't give us any uh, uh, any more jet fuel to keep us going. But got us established, you know, because we had great chemistry together, so it worked well for us that way. But fans never knew if we could either win or lose, you know. Definitely, definitely. And if you think about it, the American Males didn't last, you know, for too much longer after that because um, 
they end up turning Marcus Bagwell into Buff Bagwell uh, a little bit down the road. And, you know, he turns heel on you. He joins the NWO, and then you guys start shooting. What did you think of it at that time? Did you feel like he, he was getting, you know, the, the push and you were kind of getting shafted, or did you like where that was headed with that, you know, that feud storyline? Um, I mean, I knew something like that was going to happen with him because we had talked about it a little bit because him and Nash have been friends for a long time, and they actually traveled together um, back in the day. And so when Kevin got his, you know, came in with NWO and got the good rub and everything else, when they were going to do the who wants to turn stuff, you know, enjoying the, you know, you got 30 days, you know, that's whatever it was. Nash said to Marcus, you know, we're going to, you know, you're going to be one of the one guys to do it. I think we're either in Lakeland, Florida, or it's in Tampa, Florida. I think it was Lakeland where we were doing the Nitro where he turned on me. Uh, Ken walked up to him and said, tonight's going to be tonight. He walked up to both of us, pulled us both decided said, tonight's going to be tonight, Marcus. You're going to turn. You know, Marcus was actually supposed to wrestle Steve Regal that night and put Regal over, which Marcus, of course, wouldn't be happy about, but that's just what they were going to do. I think it was kind of another reason why Kev jumped in and said, no, we're not going to let it happen. And uh, for for me and our friendship with Marcus, I was glad for him because he had been a babyface tag team for so long that he was, you know, painted into a corner. That's all he was was a babyface tag team guy. So when he turned heel, I figured it would be a great chance for him as a friend to get a rub, to get a push, to get the shot that he deserved. You know, especially being a good guy for so long to turn heel, finally, it would be good for him. And then plus, me being involved, I figured it'd be a chance to get me a rub as a singles guy myself, you know. So I figured we'd have some matches against each other, and it would work out well. And the funny thing about it is, after he turned on me, I can't remember exactly when that was or how it fell, but his girlfriend... Um, Erica walked up to me at the gym, I guess on like a, a, a Wednesday or a Thursday after we had gotten home from being on the road doing the shows, and she goes, isn't it cool? I'm like, what do you mean isn't it cool? She goes, you're wrestling Marcus at the pay-per-view. I said, what? She goes, you're wrestling Marcus at the sold-out pay-per-view. You don't know that? I'm like, no. So here I am finding out I'm wrestling Marcus the first ever sold-out pay-per-view from Marcus's girlfriend at the gym. <laughs> Showed you a little bit, even at that early time, um, which was January of 97, how dysfunctional the company already was. <laughs> so, uh, basically, I guess it was that week at the, uh, at that Nitro, or, or either, either, yeah, it was that week at that Nitro is when, they actually told us in the office what we were doing. Let's see, they're at the pay-per-view. And then they had the, uh, the classic champions where Russell McInnes. And uh, it was supposed to be a, a decent match, but we got cut to two minutes. The way we got the ring, the minute the referee told us to go home. So I was like, this sucks. <laughs> so we had to go out there and do something, some stuff real quick, back and forth, and they were flying forward for the finish, one, two, three. Because that's what kind of sucks sometimes. You're trying to establish somebody or do something, on a live show, things get cut. And so it really didn't do a whole lot to build me, in a sense. And in the middle of a match, all Marcus do is either walk out and watch me or whatever. We don't have a lot of uh, interaction, either, either cut promos of each other or, or anything. 
a little bit here, a little stupid there, but nothing major. But we went out and had a great match at the pay-per-view. Um, actually created his blockbuster, created his finish for him in the Cedar Rapids, uh, the hotel there. And um, in our room, they wanted something off the top for a finish, is all they told us. And I knew Marcus wanted to do something like Rick Rude. Because he did like a rude or a neck breaker on me when he turned on me with the night with the uh, in Florida that night. So um I said, Well we get on top, we'll be giving each other shots back and forth. You know, I'll take the bump down, you know, he can catch me, cut a flip, and we catch my head and we end up in like a spot where it's like a rude awakening where it could be like a neck breaker. Hmm. And so he basically tried it on the beds in the hotel room <laughs> and got the idea of it and the whole gist of it. We never did it live, never practiced or anything else other than the hotel room, and then we did it in the, we did it in the ring. And that was the <laughs> first time he ever did it. It was on the pay-per-view in the ring without any practice. <laughs> and so that became his finish and got it over. Now, did you mind that he was kind of going to get the push out of the feud and that you were kind of almost not going to be forgotten, mm. but they weren't going to really push no, you? No, not, again, push not really. Again, not really, because, I mean, the funny thing was right after that, we left for a three-week tour of Japan. And, um, you know, we had the, uh, the the pay-per-view on Saturday night because the Super Bowl was on Sunday. So we did the pay-per-view that Saturday night. That Sunday, we flew from Cedar Rapids to Chicago, uh, Scott Norton, Chris Jericho, Marcus, and myself, we ended up getting snowed in Chicago uh, and ended up in Japan a day late, but we did a three-week tour of Japan with the four of us. And they had me and Marcus go there as the American Males team was how they were promoting us because Japan was, a, was, I think, either a week or two weeks late on the news I got from the States. And now they showed our TV. I think it was a week late or something like that. So they didn't know completely about his turn and everything. But by the time we got there, they decided to put us as a team, as in the, the American team, you know. They put us in single matches, and then they actually had us wrestle against each other a couple of times. But ended up teaming with uh, with Jericho more than anybody else on that whole tour. But um, then we came back from there, and they set up a strap match in a week. When we came back from the tour, we did the um, the spring break edition in 60-degree weather in Panama City outside by the pool. Uh, we set up a strap match because Marcus came out and started whipping at us with a belt for the uh, uncensored pay-per-view. Now, with the whole – with the turn with Marcus, did they see for you – what you would end up having a little bit down the road when you did transition over into joining the flock, which was you know not not too long afterwards. You did have your you know little singles run by yourself, but um, did did you kind of foresee that down the road, or was that still eh, maybe not there yet? Because I guess Raven hadn't joined the company at that point. No, we were didn't have a whole lot of crew after that. I mean, honestly, we just. Uh... Didn't really lose direction, you know, fortunes just didn't have any plan of action after that that uh that strap match. Um, I mean Terry Taylor, who was doing part of the book there, wanted to actually to have uh for the finish of the um 
the strap match to have uh, us bump the referee. It was um, P.B. Anderson, Randy, having bumped him because he's a smaller ref. I would bump him. X-Pot was going to come down and, like, they'll put a rag over my face and have me pass out from the rag, have X-Pot run off, and then Marcus, you know, get up and shake up the referee and drag me to four quarters. I can't remember who changed it, but somebody said, no, we don't want to do that. Let's just have Marcus win clean. Because they could have kept this score maybe another pay-per-view or something. They could have had a split. Something where you screwed me over again. Then the next one, you know, have it going for a little longer. But somebody, uh, again, I don't know the politics that were going on at the time, but somebody said, no, let's just have Marcus win out clean. That's what Jerry Taylor came with, the idea of me getting hung over the top rope. So it's not really a clean win. But it's uh you know it, it's it's one where I got choked out from the uh, from the strap of being hung, so that's just a good way instead of losing clean somehow that's a way of losing with 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 injury instead of losing with just defeat, and um, they really didn't have a game plan of action for either one of us after that. Marcus had just become one of the the first one to turn to join the NWO and he wasn't the last. And then, unfortunately, they put him into a tanky with Norton right after that. Right, So yeah, here are both yeah. of our thoughts of him being a singles heel with a decent run, maybe being a singles heel, they put him back into a tag team. So, unfortunately, he got painted into that tag team thing even when he was supposed to go for a singles run. So, then, you know, it was just, again, it was just they had plans of action, here, 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 and then after that for the long term, no real sight to it. So we yeah, kind of got is, both of us kind of got lost in the shuffle. Right, which is so weird because, you know, that that was a pretty uh, – I guess you could still say that, the you know, the buff turn was uh, significant in terms of the fact that, you know, he was really uh, – you know, it was breaking up uh, one of the face tag teams. So it had its uh, – it definitely had its place. But let's talk about when you moved over to uh, joining the flock, your feud with Raven. Now, I was talking about with John before we uh, we started up tonight. I got to say it was probably my favorite moment of uh, the whole entire uh, Raven's flock run when Mean Gene's interviewing him at the guardrail like he did every week, and all of a sudden Scotty Riggs just comes out and hops over the rail and it's sitting next to Raven, and me and Gene gives a classic, you know, like, what's going on here? But uh, how did that come about? And uh, as in the uh, segment itself, it was pretty much no thought process put into what we were going to do. Um, back then, Nitro itself, uh, wrestling itself, was not as, I mean, it, it's almost completely scripted now that it's a TV show. WWE is, is a brand, it's a TV show now, and they script almost everything they're going to do so they know where the cameras are, you know, how to catch this, where the microphone is, catch that. Everything is done almost a step-by-step step, like a movie script, movie stunt scene, everything. Back then, if it would have happened off kilter, if I would have walked up and just really jumped in J.J.'s face and maybe gave him a little shove and really been adamant about it, you know, he could have backed off or done something. You know, he could have gotten in the face. You know, we would have paid off with each other a lot more. It was a lot more improv back then. It was a lot more, you know, we could have gone back and forth. I could have took a bump over the rail and fallen down from JJ and popped up, you know, and stayed with the anti, you know, anti-society, anti-business, anti-everything that the fuck was, you know, the anti-corporate that we were. 
stayed with that message. You know, we could have put up with just so many different ways. I could have walked out there and, and just gave him a look and just stared at him without even touching him. And Mean Gene could have come up with a different line and, and kind of explained that, you know. It, there could have been a whole different myriad of ways we took it. That just happened to be a live, you know, way that we just went with it. You know, it was like when the NWO, when they attacked, uh, they attacked us at uh, Orlando. We all had ideas of what was going to happen. What can you? Who's going to do this? What was going to do that? How I would run out of a camper and say my thing. How you know, Raymond Stewart would jump off and 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 uh, Kevin Nash would catch him and pitch him into the trailer. And the way he threw him, we had a lawn dart. And that became memorable for that moment that he threw him like head first into the trailer. He could have picked him up, pressed him over his head, and threw him body wise into the trailer. Could have made a different aspect of it. But, you know, everything was just played back then a lot more improv. So this is the old Ravens flock and everything. And JJ in that segment there, that spot of me joining the flock, that was just, you know, it's pretty much okay, Riggs, you walk out, we'll be doing something. You hop over the rail, sit next to Raven. That was pretty much all we had. That was the outline we had. Everything else is done, you know, pretty much just offhand, off kilter. Just whenever you want to do it, however you want to, you know, however you feel at the moment to do. That's when things are the best a lot of times. That's why you'll never hear another, uh, you know, Raven was very good at his promos. He sat down and wrote most of them. Sometimes, you know, if he was being real lyrical, he was able to come off, you know, with some good verbiage, but he wrote all his own promos, kind of like Bray Wyatt does nowadays. He writes all his own promos, gets them approved. Raven just wrote his own promos. He didn't have to get them approved. Let him know what he's going to say. But then you got guys like Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, uh, Roddy Piper, promo masters who do everything off the cuff. They don't stick to a script. They go by the feel, by the vibe, by the energy in the building. You got to be able to play off that to make it seem, you know, realistic to suspend a disbelief. So just back then, in that time period when we were doing Nitro, a lot of things you saw us do, especially with the flock, a lot of it was off cuff. It was off, you know, there wasn't a script to it. It was just do, you know, do how you're going to do it and, and that's how you're going to act. You know who, you know better how you're going to be in the situation than somebody trying to tell you exactly what to do. Now, speaking of uh, off the cuff and maybe not scripted, that eye injury that you had, obviously the eye patch, was that a legit injury? Because, you know, like there's a, I guess like a little, uh, you know, um, rumor, I guess you could say internet rumor that possibly that it was a legit injury. Is that legit? And, you know, was the eye patch neither, which is just part of the gimmick? I was legit blind uh, in that eye. Basically, wasn't blind blind, but basically because of, Hitting the, the chair the way I did, kind of bruised the eye a little bit. Made getting with the TV lights. I got used to get headaches with bright lights and everything on TV because everything was so lit around the ring and everything was lit up. You're doing the promo, the lights at you. So basically, what we did was to protect the eye, and keep, keep, keep it from headaches. Put an, eye, uh, an opaque contact lens in there, which is like you know, which is why you see the white eye. You don't see the iris and everything else, the, the pupil. And that thing is, you cannot see. Then put the patch over it. So I was, you know, legit blind, where I had no depth perception. and could not see out of that eye. For 
you know, I didn't wrestle. I didn't put the eye contact in. I just wore sunglasses to perceive the image because it wouldn't have the bright lights. You know, TV lights, you know, that were about headaches. But when I wrestled, I was legit, legit 100% blind in that eye. <laughs> I believe Raven called it like an ocular disability or something like that. Some, you know, some clever Raven. I don't know if that was Raven or if that was uh, Saturn. Well, it was one of those two. Um, I remember Saturn said something about the eye when uh, he was freeing us, you know. Oh, yeah. Put over, he goes, you were one half world tag team champions, and now you, you know, something. I can't remember if it was not your disability or, or something with my vision. One of those two said something at that point, always using the eye. My my hashtag always nowadays is kick tick the eye patch, or they dug the eye patch back then. Is <laughs> that bad boy image that, you know, there's something crazy about this guy persona that uh that took Doug. Yeah, it was definitely cool. It was definitely different. I mean, obviously the flock in, in itself was cool. And did you feel the flock kind of was put in the background and, and not really put in the forefront as much as they could have been? Do you think they could have been utilized better by WCW? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, situations, people, groups, everyone put it, that could have been used so much better at that time. I mean, if you looked at uh, our roster, um, when I joined in 95, I was number 47 that got a contract. Of, uh, that was 95. By 99, there was 204 or 207, somebody like that, 200 plus people on the contract, including Metro girls, referees, wrestlers that never worked. I mean, there was a, all all Eric did at the time was go out and hire everybody and anybody that was a wrestler that Vince could probably use and put them under two year deals and paying like fifty grand or seventy five grand a year to not even wrestle to not work just so that they wouldn't couldn't work for Vince and then put a lot of them on Saturday night shows you know so it was that type of. Uh, because nobody wanted to work Saturday night anymore, or the power shows, or the pros, or stuff like that. The, um, the worldwide shows, uh, the syndicated shows we had, nobody wanted to work then. They just wanted to do Nitro and Thunder and pay-per-views, which is live, you know, TV events. You know, they weren't uh, the B or C t- shows that everybody, you know, said they were. So um, Eric went out and hired everybody. So there was a huge list of talent. It just wasn't being used right. I mean, if, if everyone was would be used right, you would have never seen Benoit, Malenko, Jericho, Giant, all those guys leave WCW and go to events as soon as their deals were done. So there's a lot of talent that left. You know, Eddie Guerrero took him and his brother and went to went to events, and, and just a lot of talent left and went to events just because they weren't being used right. And as soon as that young talent left, WCW became an old man's home. So, uh, but when it came to the flock at that time, there was a, we were a bunch of young talent. You know, I've been around a little bit. Raven had been around a long time. Saturn had been a while. Uh, but nobody else, I mean, like Lodi, Sick Boy, even Kidman was, was barely used, you know. So they were young, hot, fresh talents. Sick Boy and Lodi were straight out of the power plant. So nobody really seen them. Great talents. Lodi was... He just knew how to be, be a heat seeking missile. His wrestling skills at the time were not that great, but he had a personality wise good enough to where he could get heat just by holding the signs and doing those things. That's Raven made him a sign guy like he had in, in, in ECW. 
So there was, you know, just a numerous parts of the group. Van Hammer got put in there to be muscle. You know, uh, we were kind of the oddities almost like they had back in WWF times. We were a bunch of goofballs. We were the grunge thing. And, you know, we got got uh, Reese was brought in to be uh, just a monster of the group, even though he could barely work. You know, we still had to have a monster. We always want to have a monster. And then Horace got added in later because uh, he was with his nephew. They wanted to try and find something for Horace to do, so he joined the flock and he joined the NWO. So it, it, we thought it might help us politically, but in, and in fact, it didn't do a thing for us. Uh, <laughs> it was just the way it was back then. And we were the only group at the time. Uh, wrestling was changing just a bit then. We were the only group that were trying to be legit heels. We didn't want to be cheered. We wanted to be rude. That's where we jumped to Benoit and Malenko and, uh, like and DDP and uh, Martin Marty Gennetti and a few guys on the shows. Where we'd always jump them and we got involved in feuds where we were the bad guys. You know, we did not want to be cheered. We didn't do stuff to play to the crowd. Um, the NWO were the cool guys. You know, they were too they were too cool to be good guys, but they were too cool to be bad guys. They didn't want to be booed. They wanted some merchandise. You know, so that was that was the whole concept behind the NWO. It was it was too cool. You know, that group. Um, the Horsemen had become a a great babyface group going against NWO. The NWO was supposed to be the main bad guys, the main antagonists, the main villains. None of them were. All they were a bunch of cocky guys that would be too cool. You know, they had all the high, the cool, you know, gang signs and stuff. Well, the flock, all we did was go out there and beat people up. We barely won matches. We always had people laying. So we always had some heat. We always had some sting. Even if we lost, you know, we left them thinking, you know, we, we beat somebody up. And so that was how the politics that went at the time. And then um, once we actually started getting some steam, I think it was after uh, there was a match that Raven and Nash were supposed to have, if I can recall, and they actually didn't want they, – they booked in a wrestle. And they were out there, just, you know, I kind of, kind of remember the conversation going, man, they don't want to see us work, you know, with Nash was, with some of because he, he didn't want to have the factions in a sense, and they'll be on the flop to intermingle. Nash didn't want it, so he, he didn't think it would work good for the, the politics in the NWO, being the top heels to, in his mind, they were top heels, but they were too cool. And again, he didn't want to work with us because he, he didn't see us as a threat. Like they should have created a, a thing where it had us going against the horsemen, had us going against, you know, uh, the NWO, had us going against the other little cliques groups that were there. And then you got some good storylines. You got some fresh storylines. Instead, it was all the other guys going against all the other guys, and the young guys get pushed out. And it was just the nature of the beast back then. It's just where it went. And so basically, you almost, it was almost after that thing where they didn't want to do that. And all that did was, was uh, every one of us charged at him one at a time. He flipped us out, threw us one way, gave one of us a move, gave somebody a boot. Then Saturn slid in. They did a stare down. And then I think, uh, I can't remember exactly how it finished, it ended. It ended something with, with no contact, no nothing, and that was it. So instead of having the massive, the, like they were booked to have, they decided just to do, beat the flock up and, you know, 
Raven and Saturn would slide out, you know, keep somebody still alive in a sense. But the rest of us got kind of like, you know, uh, dishragged. We kind of got tossed around a little bit. But um, it was almost after that, you almost started seeing the flock instead of the six of us, you know, five, six of us beat somebody up leaving them laying. One guy, also named Benoit or DDP or whoever, our momentum changed, and, and they didn't want to start seeing us, you know, leave with heat because we were still in summer of thunder. They decided, you know, philosophically, it was time for all of us to start getting beaten up. So one guy would beat the six of us up and leave us all laying. And it was all due to the blueprint of what Nash wanted, how Nash wanted that, that, uh, that match to go. So that's when everything started changing. And Raven saw the change in the, on the walls. So that's when they decided to break us up. So they made that to a storyline. And, you know, that's when the NWO went to the red and the white and had, you know, the different boots in NWO and, and everything else. And just, you know, so everything just became so watered down then because nobody in the main NWO wanted to bounce around. They had their bounce around with guys from Bagwell to Horace and all the other guys. But, then they had to have a red group go against a white group, you know, and all all this stuff. To, so everyone had to be a part of the one group, you know, because they were too cool. They were selling merchandise, even though guys weren't getting merch from them. They weren't getting money from the merch. Only a few guys were. But everybody wanted to be a part of the cool group. So, yes, when you saw a lot of the things started to change and how groups were uh, put dynamically against each other, we could have done so much. There could have been so many different things done at that time in the town that was there. But it just, you know, the older guys just did not want to use, did not want to work with the younger guys. Raven could have done so much with so many of the guys that they didn't want to work with him because they didn't like his style. They didn't like the chairs, the tables, the, the fighting, the, 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 you know, the, the outlandish banter. Could you have seen Raven go against Hogan? That could have been some great matches, but Hogan didn't want to work that style. So that would never that would never happen. There'd be so many, you know, there's so many Raven against any of those guys. Because see, Raven and Luger, Luger didn't want to work with them because Luger didn't like that style either. There's a lot of guys that just didn't like that style. But Raven, philosophically in the ring, could have got a lot of guys so much more, you know, could have got him steam as a heel and could have got that much more influence as babyface. But it just didn't. Uh, guys just didn't see it that way. So it's just a different time of the business. And if you would have had a, a booker with a strong hand that would have said, you know, this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing, you can you can give some tips to make it better, but you're working a match. There were too many guys back then at the time that had influence that would say, we didn't want to do this, we're not doing that. We'd always come into TVs, boards would be changed, the flock would be beating somebody up. Even with Steam, with Raven with the promo, uh, by the end of the night, after everything got changed with board, the flock were getting beaten up, and Raven was hightailing it out the building one way or another. You know what I'm saying? Instead of leaving strong, then we was running. So trying to make us the cowardly heels, but we were still the heels, but we were, we were, you know, we were taking shit then instead of being the guys leaving with steam. And it takes the thunder away when you do that too often. There's time and places for everything, but it became a pattern. It just kind of, you know, it takes away what your credibility and your fans eyes. Obviously, you know, they possibly broke up the flock too often. Obviously, they didn't use them right, and they could have used them in, in different ways. But, like, Saturn basically, Peter Raven, ended the flock, and you kind of went off and did almost a 
you know, Paul Ondorf-esque, like, narcissistic uh, heel gimmick, um, you know, almost like a Lex Luger-esque uh, narcissist uh, heel gimmick as well. What was the idea behind, you know, that gimmick, and then not soon thereafter you would then depart from WCW? I mean, the biggest thing behind that, I actually wanted to keep the eye patch and uh, came up with, uh, I met with Terry Taylor, JJ, and a couple of guys that were like the head committee guys and pitched the idea of doing a snake Plissken gimmick because that's kind of who the gimmick was a little bit looked after, you know, Kurt Russell, snake mm-hmm. Plissken character. And so I kind of wanted to, to look like. I wanted to keep the eye patch and I wanted to get some other gear made up that one of our special effects guys was doing some of the stuff for WCW. Made me a, uh, a leather jacket that I got from Sturgis, painted some stuff on it, did some stuff with it, made me some boots, and just created a whole new gear look for me. So I brought it in, brought some 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 drawing sketches that he did for the character, you know, a, a nice little presentation with it. And all I can remember is Terry Taylor sitting there going, no, we ain't going to do that. We want to turn you back to a good-looking baby face to make you heal. Kind of like you were with the American males. But we got we got to do something to, to just really get you to kind of be an edgy thing, that would be, uh, you know, so drastic from what you just were, because you know, that's where we think, you know, you do, you'll do well as being, you know, a, a very cocky guy with your looks. Because you look, you're you're a great looking guy in American Males. So I work for you. You're you're really a great looking. You know, so they put over instead of me going, let me run with this character that was it's kind of over, but they wanted everyone to change their looks and their appearance. Kidman went from scratching to. Wearing the wife beard and the jeans, Saturn became the, the Marilyn Manson type persona. Raven stayed the same. You know, Van Halen became a peace guy. Lodi became uh, him and, uh, oh, God, what's the other guy's name? Lenny. Lenny Lane became Lenny and Lodi. So we all kind of went our separate ways and, and dropped the thing. But it was just kind of one of those deals where I, I had a completely different way of running with it. And they said, no, we don't want you to do that. And, they kind of gave me the mirror gimmick to kind of do to change the look, to change what, you know, that lost eye patch, got the eye fixed. Raven wouldn't let me do it. He wouldn't let me fix the eye. All this little gaga with it. But, you know, they, they gave me one pay-per-view match that was kind of a popcorn match against Michael Ripperak. We went out there in Tacoma at uh, um, uh, Spring Stampede in 99. It was a massive. We followed, I think it was, that Blitzkrieg and Hooventug got to do this high-flying high windows match. They were, all on, they, were, they were 10 feet off the ground for most of the match. They were high-flying, incredible luchador stuff. Then they had Hack and Brian Knobs do a hardcore match where they used everything, tables, chairs, everything you think of. The only thing they had, uh, Conan and Disco for the TV title, which was a good one. And then and all those matches were advertised, and they had me and Mikey. It was my, Mikey's one of his first matches with the company. So the fans really didn't know him. A few fans knew him from ECW, but they really didn't know him. And here I come out doing this whole new mirror gimmick. It completely changed my image. And the fans went, yawn, okay. They were chanting boring and all kind of stuff during the match. I still remember, me and Mikey went up there and they did a good match, but there was nothing to really push the match. They wanted just to give me a win on pay-per-view. There's their whole idea behind it, maybe get the character started. The only thing that I got over in that match, the fans were chanting boring. I remember I dropped down, had Mikey down, and I dropped down just put on a rear chin lock. 
and sat there. And Mikey was like, dude, we got to do something. I said, no. Nah. And he wasn't panicky, but he wanted to do something. I said, no, nah, we're going to sit here. Screw these fans. <laughs> you know, if they're, chanting, they're if they're disrespecting us by chanting that, they don't like it, I'll give them something to be bored about. And we probably sat there for like 15, 20, 30 seconds, which is a long time in a match. Just sat there. And the only pro- the only props I got out of it, and then a few times Hogan never said anything pop, you know, nice about me in a sense. Horse Hogan was there, and he, Horse kept me says, "Dude, I was in the dressing room. We were watching that match, and you know they could hear the flip, the change, you know, the fans chant boring and stuff. And they were kind of like saying a few more, you know, and this just isn't clicking. This isn't working. And when you drop down and put that chin lock on, like, yes, yeah, you know, just that, yeah, I was talking to. He goes, man, Hogan went." Man, that Riggs guy knows what he's doing. The room <laughs> got quiet. And to me, it's one of the biggest comments. He's only given me two comments in my entire life. The only time I've ever, ever spoke to him in a couple of years, I've known him. But uh, he goes, man, he ain't let these people tell him what to do. Because that's the guy who knows what he's doing in the ring. He ain't going to listen. He ain't going to go out there and break his neck because these people aren't in the way he's doing. He knows what he's doing. That kid, that kid's good. And it kind of changed a little bit of perception of it. Of how they were doing me, what they wanted to do with me, but it really didn't didn't go anywhere. And then when I had uh, I still remember in the nitro, we were I was dressing I think we were dressing in the lane at the time. So after we were doing a couple of mirror spots and Bischoff had come out and I can't remember if he was still with NW at the time or not, how he was working his persona. But he was saying something to Bobby Heenan, I'd grab the mirror, Bobby Heenan said something about the mirror. And Bischoff, of all people, live commentary, goes, didn't Paul Wondorf do that a few years ago? Yawn. Who cares about that? That thing ain't going nowhere. And that's almost his exact verbiage. I can remember it because it just irked me to have your, you know, if if you want to say that, say that to me in the dressing room, that we're not going to do this, this mirror gimmick ain't working. Don't go out there and live commentary on Nitro. <laughs> you got two million people and bury my character as my boss. And he wonders why, you know, I have heat with him now. You know, he, there's a few things that I've always, I've been very respectful to Eric. And, and now he, you know, he didn't hire me. Kevin Sullivan hired me. But he did sign me to uh, three good contracts, basically. Or actually four contracts. Um, but uh, he signed me to my deals, gave me good good money, good pay raises, everything along with it. Kept me involved in things, made me part of the team. Uh but just his his banter with me was never ever positive, and he wonders why I had very few positive things to say about him other than the fact he was a good businessman. He always I've said a few things in other places about Eric, and and I'm I'm grateful to him, thankful to him. He's put me over in a few spots, but most of the time, it, it was just one of those things where it was just like, wow, you want to say that here now? I was in Memphis. I just got married, and I'm going off a little bit of a tangent here, but just got married, and uh, and unfortunately, um, Eric walks by with my new wife at the time. I said, Eric, can I talk to you for a second? He goes, no, I got something uh, really important to do. I can't talk right now, maybe a little bit later. I said, okay, I just want to introduce you to my wife. And uh, he goes, oh, your wife? Yeah, I got time for a lady now. And instead of going, it's, it should have been the exact opposite. If he's busy doing business, you know, if he has some business to talk to me wise, let me know what it is. I'll talk to you about it a little bit. But it's personal. He's wanted to use your wife. Oh, I got time for that. 
he didn't have time to talk to me about business if it was business because it was just me but until I said something about the wife. Then he had, he had time for that. He could put everything off to meet a chick. And so that always stuck with me. It was just one of the, the few negative things. It's just like, wow. So that's how important I'm seeing to the guy who heard me. <laughs> so just some of the things that, you know, it, 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 it just irks you how sometimes that you're related to and the times that they can relate to it. And it's okay for them to do it because they're the higher-ups or the bosses. And that was some of the things that just made it hard to work in WCW at the time. It's like when after, um, if you noticed, uh, the mirror pretty much stopped going to the ring with me after a while because I just I got tired of doing it because that was being done with it. I didn't want to carry it around anymore. I didn't want to do it. They didn't need to notice. They didn't care. didn't make a difference to them. So I was like, hey, fine, cool. I ain't got to carry that crap around me anymore. We shot a couple of uh, vignettes and stuff to do with it. Uh, the producers shot a couple of things with it at a, hotel, a couple of different hotels we were at for a few of the nitros we were doing. None of the stuff got used, approved, or anything. They spent a couple grand on shooting the videos and vignettes and stuff with doing America. Kind of like they did with Cody Rhodes. You know, something that they'd done with the same stuff and it's just using mirrors, using stuff. But WCW didn't want to use it. Whoever was in charge didn't want to, you know, didn't want to go a segment every other week on a Saturday or whatever it was, even to it on a Thunder. They just blew it off to want to use it. So I blew off using it. <laughs> so the mirrors kind of stopped going with me. And then my last match I had WCW was, uh, had a great match with Benoit. It was on a Saturday night. Whereas me and him, we uh, that singles match where we went to a nice strong finish, where um, the Saturn and Shane Douglas jumped into the ring, and um, pretty much uh, they you know, we had bumped the referee, Saturn and, uh, and 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 Shane jumped into the ring. They spike pile drove him, so you were they run out of the ring. It's looking like on Saturday night I'm going to get this big win over over uh, over Benoit. You know, it's like oh my gosh! And I do the crawl over. You know, I'm dragging myself over to make the cover. Throw the arm on him. One, two. Chris does a perfect last second kick out. Fans, you just hear him go wow. You know, even in the small audience we had that a couple, maybe a couple thousand people to show, and um, it came across great on TV. And uh, and Chris went to this chain back and forth behind that behind elbow elbow behind elbow elbow behind and into his triple German into where he floated over into the crossface. And uh, while I'm in the crossface, I was telling him, I said, "This is my last match, dude. I'm done." He's going, "What? <laughs> what?" I said, "You're my last match. I'm done with WCW." And um, Pretty much after the match, he was in tears in the back. He was going, dude, I'm going to miss you. He goes, I always loved working with you. I'm glad it could be your last match. Not really in tears, but he was stoked up. I was telling him in the ring, you're my last match. I'm done. So, but, you know, this is where I was there. It was such um, such great talent, and most of the talent was just leaving. You know, they had a great, great opportunity, a great platform, and just was not used properly. Just the wrong guys kept trying to run it. And, you know, it, it just became a mess. 
And so that's why I was so happy to get out of there and go to ECW. Yes, and you debuted in ECW as Scotty Anton. You were kind of the the friend of Rob Van Dam, and uh, obviously. And the funny thing, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me use Scotty Riggs in uh, oh, Dana Myers. Uh, yeah, WCW Dana Myers never left. I signed my. Uh, I had to go in and sign my um, my release papers. I was still getting my last couple of paychecks still sent to me. I had to sign my release papers, and um, Dana Myers, who was this bitch lawyer they had, she was just she was a business lawyer, didn't have anything to do, very little people skills. She just kind of came in, put the papers in front of me, I was sitting in a big office or conference room, whatever you want to call it, at the CNN Center, and she came in. Said here you need to sign these here, here, and here. Uh, just so that you know, you cannot use the Riggs name. We, I, I said, do you even know how I came up with that name? Because it doesn't matter. I said I came up with it. Well, we promoted it. We put it on our uh, promotional pictures. We put it on our TV. So we own the rights to it. So you cannot use it. If you use any other TV, we will sue you. Which is, I mean, she put it out there just like that and went, wow, okay. <laughs> so I just signed thing. You know, and that's I said, okay, I'm done. I'm I'm glad I'm out of here. And you know, they, uh, you know, they, we're actually going to call me like something like Great Scott, or, or when I turned on on Rob, because if you never noticed, it was just my friend Scotty. You know, um, I think Cyrus even knows. So Scotty have a last name, and in the promo one was promos, and we just didn't even respond to it because we didn't know what to call me at the time. So. Just kind of kept, you know, a little bit of the, uh, you know, just this guy, this guy, Rob's your best friend. And, and at the time, me and Rob were, were great friends. We met in 92. We knew each other for a long time. So we just kind of played off our real-life friendship and used it as an angle. So. Yeah, you guys, uh, you know, obviously you came in as his friend and you guys were teaming together. And then you guys had a pretty damn good feud. I, I liked it because, you know, a little bit of a shock value that you turned on him so quickly and helped Jerry Lynn beat him. And I remember a big uh, match at Heatwave 2000. You guys had a great match. What was it like, you know, in ECW? Did you like the vibe down there, and did you like feuding with RBD? Oh, uh, dude, I actually loved it. There It was a breath of fresh air. It was a little bit of a cluster at times, but um, like anything you do, it's going to be a little bit of a cluster when you're dealing with a whole bunch of personalities. The coolest thing there is a lot of the guys from Steve Carino, Jack Victory, been around a while, C.W. Anderson. Uh, Kid Cash, Jazz, Francine, Dreamer, all those guys up there. They all had egos, but mostly their egos were in their matches. They wanted to, they wanted to seal the show with the best match every night. Whether you were, you know, the little musketeer dude doing a comedy react, you wanted to do, you wanted to pop the people, leading them, if you were leading off the show with a comedy routine. You wanted to pop the people with it. If you were having a, a, a brawl, you wanted to leave the people gasping for more. Everyone tried to steal the, the show. You know, follow that, follow that, follow that. Was that everything you always heard from everybody. And, um, you know, so that was what gave them a great edge. And it was just a breath of fresh air in a sense to get there. And Paul Heyman was an evil genius. He was Dr. Frankenstein. It's like I've said before in a few other interviews that if uh, – if I ever ran a company, I would have Paul Heyman do the wrestling part of it, the character development and everything else. He would be the booker of it, and I would hire Bischoff to do the the, the business side of it. Because he's great, you know. He was the one who sat down with Ted Turner and said, you know, if you want to have great ratings and do something with wrestling, you know, you need to give me a live show 
and basically talked, you know, Ted Turner, a billionaire, into giving him a live show, and he turned that live show into huge ratings until my night war. Um, so Bischoff has that ability to sit well in the boardroom with suits and ties. And he, maybe he could be a TV character, but beyond that, you know, he he, he was not the uh, the master that he saw himself as in creating talent. He helped create Goldberg, but Goldberg also, if you know, if uh, if Goldberg wasn't already something, if he didn't already have an it factor, he wouldn't have gone anywhere. It was like they had Jericho, and Jericho turned to a major star. And as soon as he went to Vince and they learned how to do work character with him, he learned how to be Chris Jericho. Even though he was being that, he never he was at a low-tech glass ceiling there. But ECW, you know, you, you could find yourself, like Kid Cash was, was a high flyer, did great stuff, threw some brutal chops. Um, but just a really great, you know, great talent. And... He got a quick rub to be with uh, Van Dam in the tag team tournament, and then uh, I think the next night he beat Rhino for the TV title or something like that. There was some, you know, he got a rub because of performing so well with RVD in tag matches that he had a singles run with the ECW TV title, which is a great rub for him. You know, he went from a low guy got on the card, built his way all the way up to a great run. And Steve Corrino was the same way. Steve Corrino started off as a lackey. For Raven, which the guy was getting beat up and stuff on shows, and and turned himself into ECW World Heavyweight Champion by the end of his run there. So there was always there was never really glass ceiling except for what you put on yourself in ECW. If you could contribute, you had a job, you were working regular, you were putting on great shows, you were putting on all the shows, and it just it, it built you, and you built you. You know, Paul Heyman was the one who came up with the clap gimmick. He goes, dude. I can remember him sitting there telling me about it. I, at first I was like, the clap, ah, it's going to suck, you know? And <laughs> he pretty much told me, he goes, dude, um, what we want to do with you? He goes, you and Bagwell, he goes, it used to irritate the crap out of me when I saw you guys doing it. You walk out there and you be doing that hand clap thing. He goes, your rendering work is going to get you over with these fans, but we got to find a personality. A, a gimmick in a sense is going to is going to suit you. Something that you that you can do naturally and it'll work for you. Because I think that clap thing will. And I can remember we debuted it on a Friday night on the Spike TV. We had a house show that night somewhere I think in in Ohio. And I found house show that Friday night and a house show Saturday night. And uh, the Friday night show was good. Saturday show, we show up, and it's in this uh, pretty good Civic Center area. We go out to a ring where an eight-man tag. It's me and Carino and Rhino and uh, Jack Victor against Tajiri, Dreamer, Sandman, and gosh, somebody else. I can't remember who else. Somebody else with them. Maybe even Mikey Ripwreck or something. But there was four eight-man tag we had out there. And we go out there, and, and <laughs> it was the most amazing thing ever in my life to walk out there with these four other guys, y'all get our interests, and I go to mine, and they wrote this clap song, it was kind of a playoff, the American Male song, had the same beat, the head with the hand clap thing, and um, walk out, and there's probably about, there's maybe about uh, 3,000 people there, good, you know, good arena, good crowd, and probably a good 
40 or 50 the clap times, you know, and I was like, oh, my God. And this is uh, the first time that they, it showed up on TV. This is before Twitter, before the early Internet. You know, this is, you know, year 2000. You know, the, the dot-com thing had not yet became a huge phase. There's some dirt sheets and stuff. And so I don't think they really got really deep into character development. And the dirt sheets kind of told the matches and who won and how they won the stuff. But to walk out there the very next night, means those people watch this show on Spike TV and uh, actually it was TNN, the, the National Network, them. But, uh, I mean, they, they meant they watched the show, they dug the character, and they got over with them. So slowly but surely, you started to see that work. And I still remember um, the, uh, the biggest pops I got was in New York City at the Hammerstein Ballroom. I wrestled uh, Rob. And uh, this again, ECW crowd in New York City at that legendary ballroom, you know, the Hammerstein Ballroom, that legendary uh, venue. The music cranks up. I'm looking out there waiting, and and Heyman's in a grill position, telling you when to go out. So I kind of peek out the curtain as the music playing. And I said, "Paul, look out here." He goes, "What?" So he looks at the curtain, and I guarantee you there's probably at least seventy percent of that audience doing the clap if not more, and that music cracked up. They were all doing the clap, and Paul just got that little, you know, Chester grin on his face, looked back at me, pursed his lips, and goes, told you. <laughs> so I never really doubted you, just you know how it was going to work. <laughs> he goes, but I told you. And that same night, I had Rhino tell me, he goes, dude, and you know, Rhino did the gore gimmick, you know, it's very hardcore, very mean, nasty, just a mean dude in his, his wrestling persona. He goes, dude, I don't know how you get that clap over, but man, that's, it, it was amazing how you walk out. He goes, just the way you exude, if you're not doing this, you're not cool. <laughs> you know, you do it with heat, but you're doing it like, you know, you're just not good enough to do this hokey thing that I'm doing. And he goes, it made it look, he goes, I wish I could do it, but I, I don't have the ability to do it like you do. And that was some of the coolest comments I got from some of the guys there. You know, they were, all of them were doing it. <laughs> you know, anytime I got the ring, the referee's like, maybe do the clap, maybe do the clap, the security guys. You know, I walk up to them, they're like, maybe do it, maybe do it. And I'd grab their hands and make them do the clap. You know, so it was kind of hokey. It was really cool, but it got over. And as soon as the music would stop, as soon as uh, the clapping would stop, they'd start booing the crap out of me. Because the fans dug the gimmick, but they hated the wrestler, which is means you're doing your job well in ECW. And you would think probably five years earlier that ECW crowd would have never gotten into the clap because they were so cynical towards the business and they had evolved, you know, to be more more even if they could be more on the inside and knowing you know where you're coming from and uh, having a lot of exposure to you. Oh, dude, they used but, to yell the American. They used to, used to call me American Mills, Bagwell, suck up partner, and I mean they would they they acted like they knew all the insides, but you just as a, you didn't put them over. If you didn't put them over, some of the guys would get there and joke with them and laugh with them and stuff like that. Cut with them while they're outside and at the ring, you know that they, 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 they had been blessed with Terry Funk and. You know, some of those guys, some of the, you know, the, the Cactus Jack, you know, Mankind, Mick, you know, he, he'd been there. And they've been blessed with those talents, those huge name stars, Steve Austin when he was there, Brian Pillman. You know, all those guys that have been there, 
And so they were kind of jaded a little bit to be a small community of wrestling fans that had seen some of the top talents work through their area. And so if if you put them over, they'll, you know, they'll lay into you and, and they'll act like, you know, oh, he loves what we're doing. So we'll, we'll make it worse. But if you act like he doesn't even offend you, doesn't bother you, you, know, you just give him a few looks. Or you act like he doesn't bother you at all, you pay him no attention, they get more mad at you and actually hate you. So psychology. If you put them over, they'll keep doing it because they, you know, they're troll you in a sense. They'll think you like it, so they keep that up. But if you ignore them, they'll get mad and they'll hate you, <laughs> which means they'll, they'll do your, your clap. They'll, they'll find another way to, like, you know, hit that nerve on you as a fan trying to, you know, get get rise out of the wrestler. And what the American male thing isn't hitting it or whatever, but we'll be in the ring laughing and we'll be doing something about the American males. They'll start singing it. And we, you know, we all start laughing about it and spiking in the ring, but that's about the biggest reaction you get from us. You don't get me over and sing with you, or you don't get me over and, and yelling something at you. I, I, I like to work in the heel, an old school heel, being a heel, being the guy that's the villain. And you don't. You don't curry favor with the fans if you're trying to be the villain. So it probably, yeah. it, it, if I would have had something that and, and kept that attitude and not curry favor with them, it probably would have been a, a good, strong, you know, persona, especially if, if I got to work with some of the, the upper talent guys like I did there. You know, I was right. very blessed to get to work with Dreamer, with Van Damme, with, 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 with all those cats, you know, so... Got to work with the top guys, so it was a lot of fun. It was it was, it was good. Yeah, that uh, that network storyline was uh, you know carried ECW for a little bit there. But as it started to get to the end of ECW, did you see the writing on the wall? The end was near, and you know, is the I don't know if it happened to you specifically, but you know, the stories of you know Paul Heyman holding out on pay for some guys, some guys just working for the sake of working. You know, was that? Well, I mean, everything had its, everything had its its goodness bad towards the end of it. You can kind of tell things are going on when some shows are getting canceled. Um, when Paul stopped coming to TVs, you know, and and when Dusty Rhodes, who was working there uh, at the time, also when he stopped coming, when RVD basically said he wasn't coming because he wasn't, you know, until he got his, uh, you know, at least half his back pay that was dealt to him. Or if he wasn't seeing something different, he wasn't coming to the TVs. So, you know, they uh, you, you get a FedEx package. You usually had your in the mail is worth it. They still send them. You, see, you get a FedEx package in the mail from them. Uh, that's supposed to have your tickets in, and it's empty. <laughs> and so you call up the office lady, and well, are my tickets still in there? You didn't get tickets? No. Uh, I guess that means not having them in the show. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Cool. You know, and you still get your paycheck in, but it might be a little less than it's supposed to be. It's, you know, with a promissory note of the rest of it in another week, you know. So it, it was, there was definitely like, just like WCW, there was there were signs in the wall that things just were not working there. Like when I, the last few months of WCW, people were walking around in the back like on eggshells, you know. Um, nobody knew who was still going to be around. You know, nobody knew who was going to do this, who was going to do that. They did a battle royal with us at WCW when Russo was there that the winner of the battle royal got to keep his job. So you basically knew 
everybody else that, that doesn't, you know, if you didn't win the battle royal, that was a way of saying, you know, we weren't going to rehire you or we weren't going to resign you or we're changing your, your contract to, to cut money because Bischoff had been booted out as being the, the head guy with the company and they put Bill Bush in control of the, uh, the company. And, uh, Bill was a great guy. I met him on some, you know, some of the nitros and stuff. He was one of the office guys to come around. He was an accountant. And he was one of the, he was the guy who was the, the, the head honcho of WCW for a while. Because they were trying to, because the AOL and Time Warner merger had gone through, or hadn't gone through, but it was being negotiated. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to start trimming some of the fat off the company and start making it profitable, like it was for a short period of time in its, in its existence. And so they put Bill Bush, an accountant, in charge of it. And he didn't know anything about wrestling, he was an accountant. So, you know, things were on the writing there. There, You know, things were on the wall there with those guys. ECW is a little more, you can kind of tell because, like I said, when shows started getting canceled, when, you know, there was all the talk, you know, uh, a pay-per-view didn't run or something. I can't remember exactly. Uh, TV didn't run like it was supposed to. And the next thing you know, it was all the talk of uh, the last pay-per-view. Everybody was already being told, you know, you're going to be there, you're going to be there, we're going to do this, we'll do this, and that was it. So it it, it was there, the signs were there. It was unfortunate because they had such great talent. It was, you know, just the business side of it. Um, what Paul did when, when ECW first started, he borrowed from Peter to pay Paul then. And then when ECW finally actually became viable and was making money, he had so many past bills, unfortunately, that he was paying everything off from the past and what he was making at the time. So it was kind of hard to keep the, everything going because he was trying to keep buildings going. He was trying to keep TV going. Paul was trying to do so much to keep that company going. It's ridiculous. But unfortunately, he just got, you know, he just a little too much head of, you know, water over the head there. Yeah, and then he uh, then he appears on uh, Monday Night Raw, and then the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. And it changed a shitload about the wrestling business that night. Uh, he appeared on Raw, but you know, if we could take a little bit of a wind down here now and, and kind of go back to earlier in the interview where you stated that you had wrestled Barry Windham and beat him for the TCW Heavyweight Championship. Now, would you classify that as being one of your favorite matches? And if not, what would be your favorite match or one of your favorite matches that you uh, have in your career that stands out? Dude, it's hard to ever say I had a favorite match. Just because I was so blessed with so many top talents. I mean, wrestling everybody from Ric Flair where he allowed me to call the finish. You know, I, I gave him an idea for a finish that we did. It was on a, uh, in the morning, uh, I think it was Worldwide or something, WCW Pro. It wasn't even a big show. It was one of our TVs we did down in Orlando for syndicated shows, and we did like an eight-minute, ten-minute man event. He let me call and finish for the match. Um, and how to get, I mean, I knew the, the the finish of the figure four, but and how to go into it, gave him an idea. He goes, I freaking love that. <laughs> I love that, Sky. Great. Let's do it. And when you get Rick Flair, all people are telling you what he's going to do the way you want to finish it up, you can call that a great match. I had so many great matches with Sting, Lex, with Bagwell. I mean, it, it's hard to really to say one. But I mean, it was it was definitely special to wrestle Barry Windham. Uh, it was a year long, pretty much a year long feud with him. 
uh, for Dusty and his group, um, where we went back and forth the TV title or TCW title for a while. Um, then I held it for like six months, lost it back to him. Won it again, held it for about another six months, lost it to Dustin Rhodes, his son, won it back from him. And then I fractured my elbow and, and I was in a cast and had to finish out that going there and drop the title. Didn't drop the title, but had to vacate the title and then it went out of business. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's. It, it, it just for us, I'm very Wyndham from what everything that he did and everything that he had been a part of the business, his, his history, and his legacy. That was definitely a special match. But every match had something special for me. So it's, it's really, really hard to say, you know, one favorite match. I mean, hey, some you, guys like Benoit and DDP and and just those guys, it was just, it, it, everything was, was just, again, I, I use the word blessed a lot, but dude, it really was. And uh, talk about maybe some of the opponents that you had, you know, somebody that maybe stands out in terms of, uh, you know, a guy who you just yeah, had instant chemistry with or, you know, you guys just clicked in the ring. I mean, you, you mentioned RVD, you know, you mentioned a couple guys just in that last sentence, but is there anybody that really stands out to you in terms of a guy that you, you have the perfect dance partner in when you get in the ring? Uh, Steve Carino was one of the guys in ECW. Um, we worked uh, together for a bit um, against each other a little bit when I was Rob's friend, and we worked as partners and stuff in the network. And then I actually turned him babyface in, in a really good match in ECW at the ECW Arena. Um, he had come out and kind of got a little bit of a babyface pop. We were wrestling against each other, and, and I still remember just getting into his face and you look like we're cursing at each other and I'm poking at my finger. I'm just basically saying, get rid of those goosebumps, kid, because I'm turning your baby face right here. You're listening to people there popping for you. I'm turning your baby face. You're a big baby face now. You and the ECW are the baby face. And he kept going, don't do this. You're going to make me laugh. Don't do this. You're going to make me laugh. And we went out and threw some of the best punches that I had ever seen. There was one photograph I saw of it. We were punching each other at the same time, and it looked like we were knocking each other like rock 'em sock 'em robots. And it was amazing. Hmm. Just, and he was just one of the few guys that we we went out there and in that match. Um, Paul pulled us aside and said, "I want y'all to do like a Nitro match, which is a very high-paced wrestling match, like you'd see on Nitro. We want that type of segment out of this match, where you got to finish and what you're going to do. Where we want everything to really, really flow and really be good." And Scotty, you know how you do those, you know how to do those matches. And we went out there, and it, it was we were perfect dance partners. It was one of the few times we got to wrestle each other, because um, when we were out some Ford Dusty, we were in the same we were we were team partners there. But we only got to wrestle each other once or twice. Um, there was once we were wrestling each other in Virginia Beach, and he was covering me on the finish, and I just happened to bite his nipple, and he was trying to pull off of me. And it was a rib. Dusty wanted me to pull a rib on him. Dusty's like, I said, what do you to do? And Dusty's bite his nipple, baby. You know, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I will. You know, and it was just a rib to be pulled in perfect spot to do it on a fish. He's covering me for the wind, and I'm biting his nipple, and he's trying to get off of me while he's trying to cover me for the three count. So it was rather funny. It was just it was just one of the great ribs of all time. So uh, just like, you know, just... I'll say I had great, just I mean, a few times in the rest of the great chemistry with Steve Carino, a guy you wouldn't figure 
but uh, he was so talented, it was amazing. Yeah, no, he was uh, he was one of our you know one of our favorite guests too that we've had because he just he tells such great stories and that's pretty funny to hear that kind of rib coming from the dream. That's uh, that's definitely uh, it's one of the uh, the more oddly uh, you know scandalous places I could see you biting during a match. But uh, hey, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, when he's covering his chest is on your face and you know when dream when when dream throws out bite his nipple, baby. You know, and throws that one out at you, and you're like, okay, you know, and how am I going to do this rib? And I know Dutch is going to be watching, you know, because he because he told you to do. If you don't do, he's going to he's going to rib you harder in the back. So that's right. Got to do it somehow. Yeah, no, that's that's very creative. So now, if we were going to look just, back, it wasn't really creative. It just happened at the time. <laughs> Think about it. For the last thing in the match, it's the last chance to get to do it. True. So I remember us and Dick Sega Roberts one time back in the early 90s, and Jake grew his double on his beard out, and he had that hard stubble like sandpaper. He put me, I had him inside a headlock, and I took him over. He said, took me over, tried to come over. He started rubbing his chin to my side. And it's <laughs> like sandpaper being rubbed in your flesh. So I let go, and I jumped away from him. He's like, Jake, what are you doing? Get your head back. Get it back in. And this is Jake Roberts calling a match. He's calling. He's calling moves that could rib me in the move the whole time. And so it's back and forth, back and forth. Every time I put him in the headlock, he'd take him over. He'd be, you know, trying to put me in the head scissors, and I I pull back into it, and he'd start rubbing his chin to me. <laughs> little things like that used to be the fun part of wrestling. You get in the ring and pull little ribs on each other and have fun, and got there and put a great match on. And the fans don't even know that you're sitting in the ring cutting up, laughing. You know, talking about what happened on the road, if you had to ride in different cars, you know, just different things. You should be able to do stuff like that in the ring. Now it's all TV and it's all a show, and you can't do that anymore. Yeah, that's uh, definitely, it's a lost age, you know, without a doubt. You guys definitely it's hold lost the key. art, but it is. Yes. It's a lost art. You hold the key. To the uh, to the to the greats, but if we're gonna look back on your career, we're gonna you know move forward. We're gonna see what you've got coming on in the future. But what would you say, looking back, you brought to the business, and maybe uh, you know if you change things uh, from certain you know personifications of a character, change you know showing how you can play uh, different roles. What would you say, Scotty Riggs brought to the wrestling business at the end of the day? A great drop kick. I would agree. <laughs> I would agree wholeheartedly. I would agree wholeheartedly. That's, the, thing that's, the, that's the, the the biggest thing that I still get pops for. Everybody likes my drop kick from years ago. And there's other guys that have stolen it. Uh, Nakamura, or something I can't remember his name from New Japan now, is one of the sweetest drop kicks I've ever seen. But he's being art to really throw in a drop kick. Uh, Cesaro saw him do a flying head scissors on Raw the other night. And that was pretty impressive because nobody does that anymore. I figured. Uh, Fucking Hoot, um, Ricky uh, Morton, Robert Gibson, the Park Motor Express, probably if they watched it, you know, they were probably parents because they were the masters of the flying hand scissors. So just be known that as one of the best drop kicks in the business. You know, just, Stinger used to hate me. He goes, Man, I, I always tried for a great drop kick if he had a great vertical and doing um, a leapfrog because you're always going to a drop kick off of uh, Tommy Rich, gave me a spot in Memphis. Well, I took his head and he called two tackles or, or tackle drop down, tackle drop down, leapfrog drop kick. 
And so it just did it every move twice, two tackles, two drop downs, two weak frogs, and with a drop kick. Of course, cut it halfway down by the time I got to WCW. But he just had a great leap frog ability and was just able to have good spring. And if you ever watched almost all of my matches, I have a tackle, drop down, leap frog, drop kick spot in it. Yeah, that's so. That's fantastic. And actually, you know, it's I, a pretty good legacy to leave. Yeah, without a doubt, and I, you know, I wanted to say it towards the end, but I guess this is the best uh, part to do. It's my tag team partner there. When we talked about best drop kicks, uh, you know, a couple we were talking about a couple weeks ago, he mentioned Scotty Riggs. He also mentioned his man uh, Kazuchika Okada from New Japan. So that's uh, Okada. That's it. That's it. Yeah, that's my 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 partner here is a, he's a big fan of your drop kick as well, but. If we can, let's get to your plugs. Tell the people where they can find Scotty Riggs. If they want to get in touch with you on social media, what you've got going on, because uh, this is a hell of an interview. This is—I call this an epic because, man, you gave us a ton of stuff, and we uh, we had a lot of fun on this. But please tell the uh, the two man power trip of wrestling listeners where they can find Scotty Riggs. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Real Scotty Riggs, and Instagram with uh, Real Scotty Riggs with. The uh, underscore at the end of it, and then uh, you can find me on Score, which is uh, Brett Hart's version of Instagram. It's uh, it's an athlete's version of uh, uh, it's on Instagram, but it's 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 all about athletes and stuff. Stuff for them. So just joined in not too long ago, and they verified me in a week. Kind of crazy. I'm the only wrestler on there, but uh, so those are the three main social media menus that I have. And that's pretty much about it with me on that. Uh, that's awesome. And, you know, even though we've talked at length about the uh, the American Male theme song, none of us appeared in critical condition at the end of this interview. So we appreciate you <laughs> going uh, light on us in that regard. But this has been, uh, like I said, it's been epic, and we really uh, we appreciate it, Scott. Man, this has been fantastic. No problem, man. It's been fun talking, uh, talking to old stories and talking about wrestling So and how it used to be. Without Wrestling a doubt. is still rushed, but it's just the gentleman.